Again, good morning, everyone. Thank you for indulging me in my silliness. I often don't show that side of myself, but I figured why not. <laughs> it's good to laugh, isn't it? I hope so. hope you feel that way. hope you believe that. Um, and by the way, as I was giving out thanks to everyone, I just want to make sure that everybody's aware that we recognize that there are many people involved in all the things that are going on here at the church. Many of you all have had a lot to, a lot of work done this week in the in the beautification of the building. And so, to each of you, God will provide His own grace and His own measure of mercy to you for your great work. And so we're we're just blessed to even be able to have the ability to put things together that are making some changes around here. So thank you for all that you do and all your faithfulness. Um, I don't know if you all remember uh, Tony Evans. We've done a couple of his studies over the past years. Uh, he's an African-American pastor, very, very well-known, popular speaker. His wife just went to be with the Lord, um, I guess, this last week. I'm not sure exactly what the date was, but one of his sons, Jonathan, and by the way, Tony Evans is uh, the father of Priscilla Shire. You recognize that name. She's been very popular in women's ministries. Um, Jonathan did a eulogy that some of you may have heard. It's kind of gone viral. Uh, Debbie read it to me the other day. I want to read you that eulogy because it really is very simple uh, but very profound because it deals so well with the reality of God and spiritual life but also the reality of our humanness. And I think you'll be able to identify with what Jonathan writes here. He says, I was wrestling with God, and this is what he said to the church as he was given her eulogy, because I said, if we have victory in your name, talking to God, didn't you hear us when we were praying? Didn't you see the cancer? Didn't you hear us? Why don't you do what we were asking of you? Because your word says, if we abide in you and your word abides in us, we can ask whatever we will and it will be given to us. Your word tells us that if we ask according to your will, that you hear us. Your word is telling us in Mark 11 that if you pray, believing, you will receive. To be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication make your requests known. Where are you? I was wrestling with God the last few days because this was a great opportunity that we can see tangibly, or we can tangibly see your glory. Everybody was praying, not only in Dallas, but around the country and around the world. People were watching. Where are you? This was an opportunity to see your glory. And as I was wrestling with God, he answered. And he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory because just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because victory was already given to your mom. You don't understand because of the victory that I have given you. There was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me because of what I've already done for you. The two answers to your prayer are yes and yes, because victory belongs to Jesus. And then he said to me, you need to understand that I am God and I am sovereign, and my game plan is bigger than any one player on the field. So you need to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on you, but lean on me because I have the ability to make this crooked situation straight. I am the sovereign God. That's why they say that I am that I am. As higher as, the heaven, as, as higher as the heavens are above the earth are my ways from your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. We don't think the same. P.S. Don't tell me how to get my glory. And finally, he just let me know, I appreciate your prayers and your trust in me, but the way that you're coming to me now is a sense of entitlement like I owe you something. You can't tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm God. You can't say, well, it should have been this way. You can't tell me, well, as much as she served you, you should have done it this way. As much as my dad has done in ministry and as much as we've done in ministry and how faithful this family is, it should be done this way. Don't come to me with that entitlement. 
Because without my victory and what I have done, all of you would be on the doorsteps of hell. I don't owe you anything. You owe me everything. And I know that it was hard for you to sit there and watch your mom die. But don't let that belittle the fact of how hard it was for me to watch my son die so she could live. So back up off me with your entitlement. (laughs) There were always two answers to your question. Yes and yes, because of my grace being sufficient. Thank you, Lord. It's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good. I love the times where humanness just exposes itself because that's often where God exposes himself the most. So we shouldn't be afraid to be human. Jonathan wasn't afraid to be human. That was in front of a large crowd and a a very honest encounter with the Lord. But aren't you thankful that God is who he is? All right. Well, I want to also thank you all for your Christmas gifts to us. I didn't mention that last week. So thank you all for your kindness to us as a family. We appreciate everything that you do for us, from the cookies all the way to the million dollars that you gave to us. And we'll use that wisely, I'm sure. Okay. Let's pray together and enjoy the word of the Lord today. Father, thank you for the joy of knowing that you are God. Thank you, Father, that you have not left it into our human hands to run this world or to even run our lives, but you have simply said to us, if we will just trust you, that you will bring to us everything that is good and right and holy. And so, Lord, we here again this week submit to you uh, that we have sinned before you this past week, that we've sinned before one another in various ways, that only you know in a lot of those situations. And we're thankful that your eyes are going to and fro, not missing anything. But yet, even as we just read in Jonathan's eulogy about his mom, that uh, you are the sovereign God, and it is because of your grace that it's true. We really do owe you everything. Lord, may the days go by as they will, and may we suffer the things that we suffer through and enjoy the things that we enjoy But, Lord, may it always be remembered in our hearts that you are our God and that we are to serve you and to live a life of thankfulness, even if nothing more than we can say, thank you, Lord, for that breath you just gave me. Lord, sometimes this life is not good. You know that. But we thank you that you are always good. And so our hearts rely on you this morning. We look forward to what you'll teach us. And we just are so excited about the joy of the Lord in us. And we pray that you'd help us to experience you in a very special way this morning. So we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're back in our series on Matthew. So find your place in Matthew chapter 5. I want to do a little bit of a review here. Remember our series theme is foundational truths from the Sermon on the Mount, and that was very purposeful on my part. I've been mentioning this for a long time uh, because this is a long series study, but it really is a foundational study from Jesus' teaching as he sat there on the mountain. And you remember now, as we've been going through this, really the emphasis or the, the main question that's been coming out from everyone in the text of Scripture is, how do I know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven? Remember that question? How do I know that? That was the young man's question in the text of Scripture we saw a couple weeks ago. That was Nicodemus, the rich young rulers, uh, the rich, um, the Pharisee uh, who came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3. Uh, that's the question that the people are really asking here on the hillside as they're watching Jesus in his life up to this point. He's just beginning his ministry. But that's really the, the, the big question. How do I know for sure I'm going to get to heaven? And quite honestly, I believe that's the question that most every person is asking today. If you ask the hardest heart, do you really want to spend an eternity in hell? They're going to say, of course not, if they're honest. Even a person who does not believe in God, there is a sense in which they know there is only one of two alternatives. You go into the bliss of eternal whatever, or you go somewhere you don't want to be. There's that realization. They may not understand it all, 
But there is that realization. And so I think this is the question on people's minds. How do I know for sure that I can go to heaven? Well, so Jesus is giving us that answer by describing who his people are. And that's what we've been going through in this Beatitude sermon so far. So let's just do a little bit of a review. I have a, a PowerPoint slide here that I'm going to try to walk you through. And hopefully you'll understand it. Is that pretty clear? Okay, good. So let's start with the character of the child of God. Okay, You'll notice that this man is already broken. And so we've seen in the first beatitude that he is to be poor in spirit, and that simply meant destitute spiritually, nothing to bring to God. He sees himself or herself as a beggar looking for God to save them. He or she mourns over their sin because now they see it. They're understanding the wicked nature of it. And then from what God has done, they are never proud but humble before God because of his graciousness. And so they are a person who are not just a pushover, but the word is meek. You'll remember this, that it means strength under control. They're a person who's very strong internally because they know that God is supporting them, but they're meek in this, they're gentle in this life because without God, they're nothing. And then all of that leads this person understanding that I must be righteous and I, I can't get enough of God's righteousness. I see it, I understand my degradation of sin, and so I need the righteousness of God. And so they never stop hungering and thirsting for the Lord and His righteousness. And then all of that causes them to be merciful because God has been so merciful to them. Just what we read really in Jonathan's eulogy there. And from that we realize that there must be a holiness to my heart. There must be a pursuit of this life of separateness. And if you see here, to be holy means to be pure in our motivation. That we're really desiring the purity of the Lord in us. This is the character of the child of God. And we'll keep adding to this. Uh, but let's look at the self-righteous one now. So this guy, you can see, he thinks he's all that. Um, this kind of parallels the poor in spirit. He's self-sufficient. I don't need God. In fact, I don't need anybody else. I have everything that I need, and I can be everything that I want to be and choose to be. He sees little to no sin in him or herself, so there's nothing to mourn over. That's foolishness. Proud of their supposed righteousness. Look how good I am. They may not say that with their words, but they certainly think it and feel it in their hearts because they're really looking at their neighbor, not at the holiness of God. And that's where it all gets distorted. If we look at our neighbor, we always look better and feel better. We can always find something wrong with our neighbor, greater than ourselves. This person works to make themselves righteous. The more I do things well, the better I will be. God certainly will accept me because I'm just a good person. Ask anybody, and they'll tell you that. Little, if any, mercy. Maybe there's a little bit there because they've experienced mercy along the way somehow, but very little because the self-righteous heart says, look, I achieved this, so you do it yourself. You figure it out. I don't need to show you anything, any kind of mercy or be merciful to you. And then all of that, of course, is a false holiness and a false purity. Okay, So... Hopefully that makes a little bit of a sense, a little bit of sense to you now, as we're just reflecting on where we are and where we have been. So, before you get too comfortable, we want to go into our study for today, and I want to back up and read all of this text. So, if you're able, uh, stand with me as we read verses one through nine and talk about happy are those who make peace. Happy are those who make peace. In verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, or the holy, the cleansed of sin, for they shall see God. And in today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All right, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I have to be honest with you and say that uh, I hope 
that you'll listen carefully to the message today because it's really a very challenging message in a lot of ways. And I don't think it's going to be the kind of message that you assume Jesus is talking about. Uh, I did that for years and really thought that what Jesus was referring to here as a peacemaker was something that I was working to achieve, but I've come to understand over my study in Scripture that I was pretty wrong about what the Lord is talking about here. So uh, this is a, a challenging message. Some of you will say, yeah, that's right. Some of you will say, ugh. Okay, so it's going to be a challenge on both sides of the fence. So we want to think through this very, very carefully and uh, very uh, seriously. But let's just back up with a couple thoughts here as we talk about peace. I think it's very providential for a couple reasons why uh, that we're in this beatitude right now. Number one, it's providential because we just celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, who is the Prince of Peace, right? That's what the scripture tells us. And our world is always looking for peace. As much as the world is looking for an eternal place to live in, I think we could pretty clearly and accurately argue that the world is really wanting peace. The problem is the world looks for it in the wrong way because people have not really experienced the peace that God brings since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, the kind of godly peace that God is able to give. If you think with me just for a second, and that's all it'll take is really a nanosecond, is that man has been fighting with each other since that time. And there's really not been any lasting peace. In fact, I found an article from July of 03 in the New York Times. And this was some of the facts that they presented. They said of the past 3,400 years, that's a long time, folks. Humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of those years. Or just 8% of recorded history. Now, if you're trying to convince me to come buy property in a place that only has peace 8% of the time, that's not a place I want to be a part of. But that's really the world that we live in according to the reality of where life has been. Same article, at least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion people. That's a lot. I read a commentary from 41 years ago on this sermon, and the commentator was saying there has been 14,553 known wars as of 36 years before Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. In fact, the same commentator said, the scarcity of peace has prompted someone to suggest that peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. That's a very profound statement. And I think that's pretty accurate in a human sense. So we have to ask the question, what is the problem? What is the problem? Well, of course the answer would be sin. We would understand that. But the real deeper answer is that we are, mankind is at war with God. That's the real problem. And it's manifested outwardly to each other. But the real problem is man's heart towards God. Because only God can give true peace. It's only God who has the ability to do this. So man's attempt at peace at best is full of of, uh, faults. Anything that he tries to achieve concerning peace is going to be tainted in some way. Because again his heart is filled with sin. There's just no question about that, causing him to be selfish, so selfish, in fact, that he hates anyone who gets in his way. And that's just reality. I mean, I've thought often that people often love one another as long as they're getting along. But as soon as that person does something that that other one doesn't quite like, then there's all of a sudden a rift. And I'm not so sure I really like you as much as I used to until there is the entering in of the Holy Spirit to give the person the willingness even to bridge the gap there. And because of that selfish, self-centered heart, any peace that man tries to achieve outside of God is temporary at best. I think that's why the statement is so appropriate. It's just really a better time to reload, and that's kind of what it is. And the world knows only this external peace, meaning that the world's peace is very superficial, 
It's often very hypocritical. The best the world can do really is to sign documents of peace, to create peace treaties in the name of peace, while at the same time building up armies in the background, building up some kind of boundaries, putting weapons in space to make sure that you keep your end of the bargain. Because if you don't, I got something for you. Well, that's not true peace. There's nowhere close to true peace. That's a false peace. The second reason I think this is providential is because we're now in this particular study, and as God's people, as we think about who we are, we need to be, and this is what Jesus is going to teach, we need to be a part of the peacemaking. We need to be the examples of that. And that comes, first of all, by us having our peace with God. It has to start there. We'll talk about that more. And then peace with each other can come. And not a temporary peace that we're to be examples of, but the lasting kind of peace that God really wants from us. And think about that yourselves. We, are God's people, are to be the examples of what peace really is all about. We're the markers. We're the ones that the Lord has put here to be the evidence of what can happen. And I think to have lasting and genuine peace in the heart of mankind is a great New Year's resolution. It's a great thing to strive for, to be a peacemaker, one who would proclaim what real peace is. Sadly, however, we as God's people really miss the mark in a lot of ways. And again, we don't have to search our hearts for very long to understand that. For example, because we're of the fall, if you will, and we have this remnant, this residual sin in us. Let's go into our homes for just a minute, and I'll prove this to you. We often will say, oh, my home is just so peaceful. Or at least we want to let everybody think that. But in reality, what we're really experiencing is just a truce. Because we know that when we go against the other one in the home, or whomever that person might be, we're a little bit stymied by that because we know that if we do bring up something, it's going to cause all-out warfare. And so we learn over the years to just keep our mouths shut, to be quiet, and we call that peace. But just because we don't say anything and everything seems to be level doesn't mean that we're really at true peace. Because really all we've done is we've hidden it or we've come up with a compromise in order to make it look like things are going well, we evade the issue or what the deep issues are and we just call it peace. And we make people think that way. But again, that just buries the problem even deeper. Eventually, though, it's going to show up. It's like that pressure cooker. It's like the pot of water on the stove. If you put a lid on there too tightly, it's going to eventually erupt, right? It's just basic chemistry. The more we stuff into ourselves what the real problems are in our relationships with one another, the more it's going to build the pressure to eventually it's going to blow. And usually it blows in very extreme ways once it gets to that point. Sometimes it becomes divorce, where a person will just say, I can't take it anymore. And if you're in counseling, you'd put a parenthesis or some kind of asterisk around the word it and say, what are you talking about? Let's define the it. And it's usually a whole list of things that have just been building to create that particular problem. Sometimes it shows up with the children, where children become wayward, and they can't wait to get out of the house anymore because they just can't stand the way it is because there's been, as they understand, and you know as well as I do, mom and dad and grandparents, that children will see right through your heart every time. You can hide just about anything from everybody, even your spouse, but your children have this uncanny ability to just see right through the problem or at least see that there's something wrong. And so children will often get to the place where they say, I'm out of here too. And sometimes in extreme cases, if it's bad enough, there can even be a murder between a parent and a child. I was thinking this morning even about, some of you will remember, and I'm going to date myself a lot here. You remember the singer Marvin Gaye? I never forget, believe it or not, that was back in 1984 when his father killed him. I read the article again this morning just to remind myself. It's just a tragic situation. Marvin Gaye had grown to his popularity in his singing, but he had also developed a severe cocaine and uh, angel dust or PCP addiction. And his father always was uh, challenged by him. And so one night it came to 
a very difficult situation where uh, Marvin was uh, after him. And it's a long story. You should read it. But his father took out a 38 special gun uh, that Marvin had actually given to him out of paranoia, thinking people were trying to kill Marvin. And his father used that and shot him twice and killed him right in their home. And then, of course, all of you all remember old enough the Elizabeth Hasem and Yen Soaring situation with Derek and Nancy Hasem right here in Bedford County. Both of them became students at University of Virginia. Uh, they just, by the way, in November of this year were pardoned, if you know, not pardoned, but they were given their parole when the parole system was still in place back when all that crime occurred. But a very vicious, very uh, horrible crime of double murder uh, of mom and dad, Derek and Nancy Hasem. And so sometimes it just leads to that kind of thing. And that's, again, the extreme situation that people fall into. But God and his peace really searches the depths of the heart. And that's what's so important to remember. God wants to touch us in the depths of our hearts so that all of that hidden there is really exposed. So we can confront them and find solutions to the problems. God is a God of problem solving. God is a God who wants peace in us and a purifying of the heart. He wants us to be free from the fears that we have in this life, whether it be from external things or even within our own relationships or it's whether there is some kind of retribution that's being created in the mind or retaliation of some sort, like I was just mentioning with the soarings or even Marvin Gaye or some kind of covert planning. The Lord is wanting to rid us of all of that. And the beauty is, is that when the heart is purified by the Holy Spirit, we can have that kind of cleansing and peace that the Lord is really talking about and really wants for us. Because there's really no need to hide the truth from Him, is there? There's nothing that would really create anything good in the ability to hide things from God or any, anybody else. There's no need to fear him or anybody else, no need to keep away from anyone else or to build walls between us and God because God is a God of peace. God's peace breaks down the walls. Now listen, God confronts the sins, right? God deals with the issues of the heart, God is not the God who just creates a truce. God in no way in Scripture ever says, okay, I'm going to create a document here so that you and I can have a truce when the issue is not really solved. And when God sent his son, he solved the issue. He paid the debt of our sin so that we can have this kind of peace with him that he really wants for us to have. So it's critical to understand that Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace, to give to us an understanding of what his people look like. People who understand what real peace is and genuine peace. And we know that because of Isaiah chapter 9, he is the Prince of Peace. Now listen, because he is the Prince of Peace, he wants his people to not only be at peace with him, but here's the tough part, he wants his people to be at peace with each other. It's one thing to say I'm at peace with God. It's another thing to say I'm at peace with each other. That's where we often fall into a trap. That's where often where Satan creates real problems for us. He wants us to be peacemakers. He is a peacemaker. And so he wants us to be peacemakers. Now, all of that being said, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be times of pain. God never said that there would not be pain in the peacemaking process, even between us and him, and especially between us and others. If you think with me just for a minute, is that even though Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it doesn't mean that he has ever said to us, and if you can find a place in Scripture that backs this kind of thought up, I'll like to see it. He never says that when I come into your heart, you're never going to have any problems with peace again, or you're never going to have any problems with pain again. He said just the opposite of all of that. Because he knows that it is through our pain that genuine healing really occurs. It's his method. It's his plan to make things right. And too often the world tries to remove the pain instead of dealing with it as if it's not even real. I mean, we are flooded, beloved, with attempts at trying to rid ourselves of pain through all kinds of things. 
through good nutrition, and I'm not arguing against these, through medication, through trips to the doctors, through all these various substitutes that are good in their own way, but they become masks in many ways if we're not dealing with in our hearts the true issues of what the problems are, first between us and God and then with each other. God wants his church, his people, to be people of peace. And we have bought the lie to not deal with things. We've bought the lie. Many people will just not deal with the issues that are in front of them. For example, if someone in the church confronts another one over some issue, and don't be afraid of the word confronts, if someone confronts someone in in an issue over the church to have peace between them, often, and I'm saying this from historical accuracy and historical experience, often the result is, well, he or she just doesn't like me. And that's why they're saying this. Or they will think, he or she then, because they've brought this up and to my attention, they're just a troublemaker. And they're just trying to create issues. Always stirring things up. And so the result often is, here's how I'll fix it. I'll just leave. I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just find another place to worship. I'll find another place to be a part of the family of God. Because in that church, they bring up issues that I don't really like. And often the one who's being the peacemaker is the one who is ridiculed, often looked down upon, even shunned, considered to be the problem maker instead of the peacemaker. But I think what we're hearing from Jesus in this beatitude is that loving, correcting pain is real and it's necessary. It's essential. If you just think with me for just a minute, any doctor knows that in order to heal a person appropriately who has an internal issue that surgery needs to be taken care of, they understand that there's going to be an element of pain that the person's not going to want to go through. Now, thankfully, we have all kinds of drugs that can help mask the pain so that the healing can occur, but there's going to be pain. It's the body's way of telling us there's something wrong. Every time we have a headache or a splinter in our finger or whatever it might be, or a backache like I've had, the body is telling us, hey, something's wrong, you jerk. You need to deal with this. Fix me. And so, praise the Lord, if you're like me, you grab the bottle of ibuprofen and you say, let's mask that baby. So I can be about my business. Listen, instead of possibly dealing with it properly, like rest and relaxation and care, we just say, oh, I'm a man. Sorry, ladies. I'm a man, and I'll just deal with it because I don't want to be a wimp. right? So often in our spiritual lives, we do the same thing. We just mask it. But pain is necessary. And so we have two choices. We can either deal with the pain properly and hopefully get rid of it properly or we can mask it and hope it gets better. Sometimes it does. Sometimes time just has a way of healing things. You've heard that slogan over the years. You know that. Often it does not though. It really all depends on what's causing the pain. How deep-seated the pain is. So Jesus is saying, my people are peacemakers. And sometimes they cause pain to get to the true healing. I want you to listen to some of these quotes that I'm going to give you because they're really amazing statements, this one especially. The Christian who enters conflict for the truth, the Christian who willingly combats error, who confronts lies and falsehood, the Christian who will point out heresy, The Christian who will point out sin in the end is not a divider. He's not a disturber. He's not a disruptor. He's a peacemaker. Because he's working towards true peace, the only true peace that God recognizes. That is an awesome and fantastic and very accurate statement. In fact, Jesus even said in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, Do not suppose that I came to grant peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. 
For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, he wasn't trying to give a whole exhaustive list there. He's trying to make sure we understand that in the core of the family unit, in the heart, when he enters into the picture, there's going to be peace eventually, but initially there could and most likely will be great pain. You say, well, why is that? What does he mean here? What he means is there is a need from his perspective for conflict spiritually. There's a need for that conflict that will bring pain in order to bring peace. He knows that. He knows that in order to deal with sin and the issues of sin between us and between him, there has to be the dealing of sin. And that will often and most regularly bring pain of some sort. For example, for a soul to come to a place of repentance, there has to be the pointing out of sin. And that's painful. The reason why people don't give their lives to Christ is because they don't want to deal with the issues that are separating them from Jesus. It's far easier to just live their life creating their own sense of what they want life to be and deal with it on their own instead of standing before a righteous and holy God and identifying that they are sinners because it hurts. It's challenging, right? You've been there. It's difficult to do that. But God says, you cannot come into my kingdom, the kingdom of peace, through the Prince of Peace without dealing with your sin, which is going to bring you pain initially. But praise his name, I am a God who can deal with that. And I will help you. The problem is the salvation of, in Jesus' illustration, was that when one family member comes to the realization of their need for Jesus, it often causes a real rift right down the family line. I mean, we all know of stories like that, especially in some other cultures, especially, I mean, you think about how the Muslim world deals with it, and I'm not comparing that to Christianity here, but you know that in some religions there is that great division when people break away from the faith, even though it's a false faith. Some of you may have found yourself in a situation in your own family where you became the one who acknowledged that you needed Jesus and your family was ridiculing you. And so you understand the pain that comes with that, but you wouldn't trade it either, would you? Now that you understand the peace that God can bring. And so it's through the conflict, Jesus is saying, that he brings about the peace that we're looking for, even if it is painful. It's how God opens the heart When he separates a person from their family as a result of them seeing their own sin, the family then looks at that individual and says, what's happened here? Why is there a difference? What's changed in you? And God knows that that becomes an avenue of being able to speak and tell the truth of what he's done and to give him glory. Commenting on this, one commentator said, biblical peacemakers are not just quiet, easygoing people who don't want to make issues who lack any understanding of doctrine, who lack justice or righteousness, who are nice but compromising, who are appeasers. No, in a sense, a true peacemaker will not tolerate the status quo of the st- if the status quo dishonors God. He seeks a peace that demands truth. He seeks to bring to light the conflict, to resolve it and to gain the victory through the truth. That's the meaning of peace here. So you see what I mean when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers... It's not those who just walk around in a kind of a lovey-dovey, oh, everything will be okay as long as we don't bring up the issues. Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who attack the issues because they create a sense of unholiness and unrighteousness that is what really causes the great divide in the family of God. So in his sermon, Jesus is saying, my people are peacemakers. People who are not afraid of dealing with the issues. This is where it gets tough. Because those of us who struggle with dealing with issues have to kind of swallow hard and be able to say, okay, Lord, I need to start doing things your way. And not just running from issues and hoping that they're all going to get better 
by default, but dealing with them in a righteous way, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And so to be clear, what I think Jesus is saying here is that most people, many people, are often peacekeepers instead of peacemakers. And so we get really the point of Jesus' whole sermon in this section, this beatitude wrong, because we find ourselves, oh, I do keep the peace. I do. You should see me in my home. I'm the middle ground all the time. And because of me, we have peace, when in reality you're just the one who's building the wall there so that the other two parties can reload and come back to war. There's a big difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. The peacekeepers do just that. They just keep peace. Shh, let's just be quiet. Keep calm, everybody. Now listen, don't get me wrong, there's a place for that. There's a time for that. But this is not appeasement, which is what that often be often is. A peacemaker jumps into the problem, says, look folks, because I love God and I love you, here's where the issues are. And here's what we need to think about. Digging in to try to find the real problem and understanding that this could potentially bring a lot of pain. Again, the problem is, beloved, we so detest pain that we think of it as being a tool of the enemy, and it is often, but often pain is the tool that God uses to help us to see Him. Even when it comes to dealing with issues. And so what Jesus has been leading up to in all of this is that before a person can be a true peacemaker, and this is why it comes sequentially in the list, before he or she can become a true peacemaker, they have to see their own sin, they have to mourn over it, they have to come meekly before the Lord, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and looking for God's mercy, and turn to Him to give, turn to others in mercy because of what God has done. But they don't stop there. That's not where it ends. Jesus adds this one in here. They work to restore peace, to become peacemakers. Why? Because it's such a problem. And the Lord knows that. It is the great divide among his people. And so the peacemaker's message is, really God's message is, you must be broken. And the peacemaker's message then becomes to another one, is that, look, I've experienced this, and so what you need to do is you need to start with a brokenness yourself. When was the last time you confronted someone about their sin and said, you need to trust God, you need to stop being at war with God and surrender to Him? See your own unrighteousness and your own inability to be righteous? To be broken? Because without brokenness, beloved, you really just become a Pharisee. That's a religious leader who thought they were doing well, but they really didn't have God at heart. It's just outward religion. One commentator said, Two people cannot be at peace until they recognize and resolve the wrong attitudes and actions that cause the conflict between them and then bring themselves to God for cleansing. Beautiful. I see my problem. You see your problem. We mutually agree that there's a problem. And so we come to God, who is the peacemaker, and we work through Him and His Word and the instruction of his word to be at peace with one another. And that's where purity and righteousness meet. And without the righteousness of Christ, the heart of the person is left to their own attempts to make things right. And again, that's going to be just a truce at best. And many of you live in a life that is just a truce. It's not real peace. One person said, the person who is not willing to disrupt and disturb in God's name cannot be a peacemaker. Listen to that. If we're not willing to disrupt and to disturb, we cannot be a peacemaker. And by the way, this is not a beatitude that you can just choose or not to choose to be a part of in God's family. In other words, God is not saying, hey, let me give you a list of things that you may want to think about and just pick the ones you like and throw away the others. That's not the case. The Lord is not giving an option here. The Lord is saying, this is my person. This is my child. To come to terms on anything less than God's truth and righteousness is to settle for a truce 
which confirms sinners in their sin and may leave them even further from the kingdom. You know what that means? Here's what I think this commentator is saying. Is it basically to say nothing to someone that you know is wayward in their life is basically just giving them permission to go ahead and live that life without really dealing with the issue. Those who in the name of love or kindness or compassion try to witness by appeasement and compromise of God's word will find that their witness leads away from him, not to him. God's peacemakers will not let a sleeping dog lie if it is opposed to God's truth. They will not protect the status quo if it is ungodly and unrighteous. They are not willing to make peace at any price. God's peace comes only in God's way. Being a peacemaker is essentially the result of a holy life and the call to others to embrace the gospel of holiness. Listen. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? But there will not come a day where Jesus says to the Father, Oh, guess what? Joe here never confessed his sin before me, but you know what? Would you just let him come in anyway? It's not going to happen. The Lord will not go around what he has declared. And so we, who are the recipients of his word and his spirit, need to listen to what the Lord is saying to us so that we live righteous and holy lives and God is truly pleased with us. I think sometimes we get the idea that when he says, enter into, well done, thy good and faithful servant, we think, look how much peace I've created when really we just become peacekeepers instead of peacemakers because there are people in our lives that are dealing with sin and we're not helping them with it. And sometimes that's painful. Often it's painful. As stern as peacemaking sounds, this is important to understand. Peacemakers are not looking for a fight. They can't be if they're really qualifying themselves through the Beatitudes we've been looking at and on the screen. These are not people looking for a fight, but looking for a a conflict to be resolved that brings about true peace in the heart. Because to just implode in anger is just going to create a bigger problem. That's not the kind of person that they are. So listen, peacemaking, let's talk about what it's not, is not compromise. It's not just pretending that the issue doesn't exist, which is what often people think about. Again, we just won't bring up the hard stuff, right? We won't deal with that. It's not that at all. We bring peace to each other in a difficult and challenging way. So let's talk practically here just for a minute. How do we bring about peace? How do we become peacemakers? Number one, I think you start with a place of agreement. When you know that there's a conflict between you and another person, I think we start with a place of agreement, which really is something like, you know what, you and I are both sinners. Can we agree on that? Do we see that we are having an issue Or better recognize that, hey, can we just also agree that we're both loved by the Lord? That God is our Father? That we're brothers and sisters in Him? That we have the Holy Spirit in us? Talk about being the child of God and the joy of your salvation. Can we just agree on those kinds of things? And that it was at Calvary that Jesus gave His life for us and enjoy the the joys of what God has done for us? Even through his own violent act, God would be the one who would bring peace to us. So start with some kind of agreement. I think secondly, we start with positive statements instead of negative statements. You know, often when we're trying to resolve conflict or we're in conflict with somebody, we come with a, let me tell you what's on my mind. I am not happy with you. And like we had to go figure that out. Right? We're, we can pretty much discern that kind of thing. But notice the Lord's approach. And this is something that's been meaningful to me in my life. You remember in the letters to the churches in Revelation, and especially in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2, notice how the Lord introduces his thoughts to the church. These are his people, the master peacemaker. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. 
Notice this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The Lord just gave them a wonderful list of all the things that were good in their lives. But notice this in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Do you see how the Lord deals with us? Here are the joys that we can celebrate. Here are the good things that I recognize. And you could apply this in your relationships. Let me talk to you about how much I love and appreciate you and then introduce something that would be corrective. Pergamum was the same way. I won't take the time to read through that. Thyatira, as I said, always positive correction first. And then thirdly, and this is very important, Remember this, please. Most people, I can't say 100%, most people do not want unsolicited correction. Most people do not want unsolicited correction. Nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, most people do not want someone to come to them and start correcting them without them giving their permission to hear the correction. You think about your own heart. Anytime you have been told what you need to fix without you asking for what you need to fix, kind of gets the hair up on the back of your neck, doesn't it? But when you give permission to that person to say, okay, tell me what's going on, then you've just opened yourself willingly to receive. But too often, as peacemakers, we'll come and say, let me show you what's wrong, but the person's not asking for it. And that leads to a brick wall. And so I think it's very important to remember that people do not like or want unsolicited advice. So you might start with a request. Would you be willing to hear some things that have troubled me? Could I share with you some things that are bothering me? Or some things that I think you need to know? And if they say no... You may practically have to find another way. Like, for example, you may take more time. You'd be a little bit more patient. Maybe write them a letter. In fact, I just wrote a three-page letter the other day to someone, sharing with them the concerns that I have over some issues. But if you're going to write, make sure you write it out clearly and that it's understood, that it's in love, with kindness, right? Respect, humility, in repentance for anything that you may have done that's not right. Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. I've said this many times before. Often we'll speak the truth. And this is a problem that peacemakers need to pay attention to. Peacemakers will speak the truth without question. But sometimes the love is left out. A peacekeeper speaks love but often very little truth. Do you see the imbalance? And therefore we have problems either way. And so the Lord in his wisdom says, speak the truth in love. Be loving. So let's summarize all this. To be a peacemaker, number one, we find peace when we surrender ourselves to God. That's number one. That has to be number one. We cannot bring peace to anybody's life without first having peace with God ourselves. That's where the war ends. Remember, we started this whole message that way. The problem is, without pe- because we're without peace, it's because we're at war with God. So that has to end. We come confessing our sin before Him, and we accept what He's done for us to pay for our sins. Number two, then we help others to make peace with God. We are to be those who help give the gospel. It's critically important. Because we've made peace with God. It's a natural flow from death to life in Christ. And then sharing that same thing that from a beggar's heart, you want other people to taste of the food that you've enjoyed. It's been so meaningful to you. And thirdly, we're to help each other be at peace with each other. Peace with God, right? Number one. And we want others to understand peace, but then we are to help each other be at peace with each other. And again, this is the point of Jesus' message here. With people in the world and especially people in the church. 
If there's ever to be a peacemaker in the world, it should be a Christian. They should be the, the one who's the heading up the, the ship on that. And number four, as real peacemakers, we must examine our own hearts first. In other words, before we go to a person or to two people or a group, we need to make sure our hearts are right. And we'll get to this in Matthew 7. You remember Jesus said, hey, don't judge. Get the beam out of your own eye before you go to look at another person's eye. So we should be quick to forgive. It always should be the case. We should be quick to let things go when people irritate us, as long as it's not something that's going to keep a wall there. In other words, we need to remember that we're made from dirt just like everybody else is, right? We need to let go of our pride and humble ourselves, think of ourselves or others better than ourselves. That's a challenge by itself, isn't it? We don't need to be defensive or protect ourselves. We don't need to be vengeful or anything like that, but accepting our wrongs. You know, one of the hardest things in the world is to accept the fact that I've done something wrong. Always looking and accepting where the problems are in the relationship, if it's part of you, offering our need to be forgiving, living humbly, as I said, before others. But we're to be the reconcilers. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are of God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How about that? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation to deal with the issues. I love this illustration. If you've ever been a part of construction, you know when they build a bridge, you know they don't start in the middle. You ever notice that? I mean, when I was a kid, I used to think, my dad was an engineer, and I used to, as he was a civil engineer, I'd say, Dad, how do they do that? Well, he taught me that one guy starts over here, and the other guy starts over here, and they line those things up until it meets in the middle. Now, that's a very simplistic thought, but the reality is just that. When two people are at opposing forces, they need to recognize all these things and come together so that they're meeting in the middle, but guess who's in the middle waiting there with them is Jesus, Right? So after we've done everything to heal the relationship, let's talk about the negative side here just for a second. It doesn't guarantee that the person is going to be amenable to what you're doing. There's no guarantee here that the person is going to listen to what you're saying. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can only affect your own heart in this. But the problem is, the Lord says, to not obey what I've said here is the same as disobeying all my other commands. So in other words, you cannot take the posture that says, it's not going to work, just give up. What's the point? We are to always be at the attempt of making peace as far as it depends on us. Again, you don't have any recourse or any way to make the other person listen. That's the Lord's business, and he'll deal with them in his own way. I think finally and fifthly, we are to always give people the benefit of the doubt. We're to always give people the benefit of the doubt. In other words, people should be able to prove their hearts. We shouldn't judge people because of how we think somebody else should respond. But just trust the Lord and follow him. Now, if you're unwilling to be a peacemaker... God will deal with that in his own way, but you're going to have to live with the consequences. And what I mean by that is, often people will say, okay, I just can't get along with this person. It's just an issue here, and so I'll give up. And they pretend like everything's okay. But reality says that if you're going to really live that way and you're going to take that kind of position, you have to be okay with the re results from that point. It's just going to stop right there. But you can't keep saying, oh, that dirty rat. Right? To forgive somebody means that you let it go. Right? And that you can tell when you haven't let something go because in your heart it'll keep coming back up. That's not forgiveness. That's holding on to a grudge. And so God calls us to be peacemakers, but we can't be irritated and frustrated 
And we can't talk about it to other people. We have to live with it if we're not going to follow what the Lord has said. But if we're going to follow what the Lord has said, he has promised to us that he will give to us a great blessing. And do you see what it is in the latter part of the verse there? We become sons of God. Think about that. You and I, children of God. Children of God. I don't know if you can just take that thought in or not, but we have a God who has made us his children. Not just because he made us, but we are his children. If you're a parent here today, grandparent, you understand the love that you have for a child. Don't you? There's nothing like it. You can't as a child understand the love of a parent. You can understand your love for the parent, but you can't understand the love of a parent for the child until you're a parent, right? We are children of God, meaning God understands what it's like to be a parent just like we are and love his children. So just flip that around and say, as a parent, I know what that's like and how precious it is that God would consider me to be a child of his. What a blessing. Sons and daughters of God. We have a personal relationship with God. Christian and Jordan were just down at the Passion Conference down at uh, Atlanta right over New Year's. And uh, those of you who are sports fans know who Tim Tebow is. Well, he was there at the conference, and as he walked up the stairs, Jordan stood up, and somebody videoed this, so we have it on record. Reached down and gave him a fist bump. Tim Tebow gave him a fist bump back. I thought about that, and I thought I told Jordan right there in the text real quickly, I said, you better not wash that hand anytime soon. Right? <clears throat> now listen, that's a really ridiculous illustration. Tim Tebow doesn't know Jordan. But for a second there, they made a little connection. Right? Jordan made a little statement to him about the Bucks needing a quarterback, right? Something like that. Sorry about you Tampa Bay fans. What's the point? If we can have a connection with somebody who's famous for just a split second, think of the connection we have with the God of the universe. Just dwell on that. He knows every facet of us. He knows all the ins and outs. He knows every detail. He's not missing a trick because you're his son or daughter. He watches. He sees you. And he wants you to be what he's given to you to be. And for today's message, Jesus is saying, I want you to be peacemakers. It's going to cost you. It's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging. But that's what I want you to be because I am the master and ultimate peacemaker. You go out and you do the same thing. Listen, beloved, if we understand the things of God, there should never be a conflict in the church body that doesn't go resolved. Right? If we really align ourselves with the Beatitudes that we've seen so far... There should never be a conflict that doesn't ultimately resolve itself because we've obeyed the Lord. And it's only, listen, hear me, it's only going to be resolved, not because God is the problem, but it's only going to be resolved because you as the problem and me as the problem have to accept the fact we're the ones who are broken. And we've got to follow God and do what God has said. And he will create in us a beauty and a peace that we've never experienced before. And you'll watch. Relationships heal. But how tragic is it, and I've experienced this in my life, how tragic it is when God's people profess to be believers, but they don't follow God in the way God has prescribed. And the relationship suffers. And it's broken. And it doesn't have to be that way. As we take part in the communion this morning... God's message to us again, it's so beautiful how the Lord does this and aligns the Lord's Supper every month with the message. It's so beautiful as he is standing here in my mind's eye before us saying, I am the Prince of Peace who have come at great cost, great pain to me, 
and to my Father to give you eternal life. Come, drink of my blood, eat of my body. In other words, take all of me. Remember what I've done for you and serve me as I have given you life. It's a beautiful thing to remember. So let's go into a time of prayer as the ushers come forward now and we reflect on the Lord's graciousness to us through the act of communion. Father, as we stand before you here making our hearts prepared and ready, Lord, I pray that in some way you have penetrated each of our hearts in a way that we need to really pay attention to. Lord, we really don't want to be a people who live in truces with one another or a false, tr- uh, a false peace. But we really want to be people who are truly at peace with one another. So, number one, Lord, we would ask you to forgive us individually. Forgive me. Forgive each of us. And then help us to truly take on your role and your spirit working through whatever is necessary, taking every opportunity according to your word in humbleness and humility and meekness, repentance and going to those that we've struggled with and trying to find some means of resolve that bring lasting peace. Lord, may we be that place, maybe in this part of the world, in this part of the community, that people will know that if they come here and are a part of this church, that we are people who truly try our best with your power to live according to your word. And Lord, for today, as we take part in uh, this memorial of your life and death. We celebrate you, Lord, because it's you who gives us this joy of being peacemakers. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.